Good morning, everybody. Grab your Bibles and turn to the New Testament letter of James. In your New Testament, it's going to be like three-quarters of the ways back, almost toward the end of your Bible. We're going to be in chapter 1, verses 21 through 25 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, then down the center uh, column of seats, there are a couple Bibles that you you should see underneath your seat, and if you don't have one, grab that, have somebody toss it to you. Well, probably shouldn't toss it. It might hit somebody in the head. Go in. James chapter 1, verses 21 through 25. We'll read these out loud together. You can cheat if you like and read them on the screen. Forgive me for not looking up the page number in the Bible, the Pew Bible. All right, 654, there you go. James chapter 1. Verses 21 through 25. Let's read these together. Here we go. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, and he goes away, and once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks intently, I'm sorry, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gathering of your church today. Uh, We thank you for not just our church, but those churches in our area that are gathering, that are opening the scriptures, that are singing songs of worship to to God and uh, glorifying His Son, honoring the Holy Spirit as God. And we do that ourselves this morning as we continue with a new series. God, we pray that you would help us open our hearts, open our eyes, help us to receive what you have for us in the word, God, as we talk about the scriptures and its important importance in our lives, I pray for special grace to articulate all that you would have for your people this morning. And I pray that the people in this room would, would make room to hear. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. All right, so it's New Year and we've started a new series called Rhythms spiritual disciplines, well, disciplines for the everyday spiritual life. And uh, very simply, we're looking at spiritual disciplines. A, dis- a spiritual disciplines, one um, author uh, defined it, is things that we do, activities that you do, that in, as you do them, help you do the things spiritually that you, you really can't do. Okay, And so we're looking at six different disciplines over the, the next few weeks. Um, think about what you do during a new year. Uh, many of us make uh, resolutions or goals. We look back and assess what life has been for us over the past few months, and good or bad, we sort of then uh, strategize or we project forward uh, in terms of what we want life to look like based upon our assessment of the previous year. And if you're like me, a lot of times, especially with resolutions, we'll do them for a little bit. And then, I mean, it just, I mean, we get tired, life gets busy, and we set those things aside. Um, 
I'm going to go to the gym like three, four times a week. I'm going to lose some weight. I'm going to read more. I'm going to relax. It, it, the, you know, it runs the gamut. A lot of times we do those things for three or four weeks. The novelty runs off, and before you know it, you have quit. That can happen in our spiritual lives as well. And um, it's unfortunate when it does that because you're not benefiting from the things that God, you know, that God has graced you with to grow you as a Christian. And so we're talking about those specific things, the discipline, spiritual disciplines of our faith, tools that God has given us that should be, become habits for us so that we are partnering with God and his Holy Spirit to help us grow spiritually. And today we're going to talk about the Bible. Uh, there's, I mean, there's no, I, this, this is the best place to start. If you're going to do any discipline as a Christian, you need the Bible, okay? Because Bible, the Bible is how God reveals himself to us. And the question for us today is, I mean, how do you pick up your Bible and study it? How do you, how can we make sense of what the Bible uh, means to us? How do you spend time reading the Bible and actually enjoy it? I'm going to start with a couple of statistics I was surprised by these stats. Perhaps you will be too. Uh, here's one. The average family, these are U.S. families, has about four Bibles. I mean, I know I've got like probably 12 myself. 88% um, of people in the U.S. own a Bible. Does that surprise you? I mean, we, we, are, we are progressively living in a postmodern society. And that statistic surprises me. These, these are 2013 statistics. Uh, I looked at some 2009 statistics as well, and it was 92% of people back in 2009 owned a Bible. That surprises me even in the society that we live in today. That's a lot of people. Of the people who actually claim to be Christians, followers of Jesus, the, the stat is about 30% of those say they read the Bible once a week. I mean, those are interesting statistics, uh, but of course, statistics aren't always 100% reliable. Um, and so, I mean, you got to take it for, for what it's worth. But here's my experience. Very few people actually open up their Bible and read it on a given day. I mean, not even a given week. The, the Bible intake that most of us are getting are when we're in some kind of worship event or worship experience. I mean, coming to church. I, I will tell you, one of the things that we have factored into our church, one of the reasons why we read the scriptures together of, and, and why I'm going to read them like two more times during my sermon is because of my experience for my own personal life, but also my experience as a pastor, that a lot of people, most people, don't get enough Bible intake. You aren't hearing and reading, partaking of God's divine revelation to you through his word enough. And so that's one of the reasons why we read and I say the scriptures a couple times during my sermon. And so, um, you know, these, these are interesting stats, but our text today deals with the, this, this issue of, of Bible intake. Um, and if you've been at the transit for a little bit, uh, this, this wasn't a, an unfamiliar text because we just dealt with it uh, in November uh, in our James series, which we're going to go back to at the end of these seven weeks looking at, at rhythms. And uh, what James is doing is he's answering the question for us that, that we all have. How can I understand the scriptures more? How can I, under, how can I get into them and have it be uh, more enjoyable? And here's the, here's the thing as we approach the, the, the text today. Um, what is it that keeps us from understanding the, the Bible? What keeps, it, what, keeps it, what keeps us from even wanting to get into 
our Bible? And I think one of the answers to that, there's a lot of answers, but one of them is sometimes we just don't understand it. Okay, if, if you're new to the, the church, if you're new to the scriptures, then, I mean, you can just easily open the Bible, which is supposed to be a book, and think that you can just read it like you would a normal book. You go to the table of contents, and you're going to look for something familiar. And, I mean, I don't know about your Bible, but in my Bible, there are some unfamiliar things in the table of contents. First, there's, there's a lot of, like, that's a lot of stuff. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and then you get to some funny names in this thing called the New Testament. And so if you're like the normal person, then you would start, you know, you start what you know. And so I'm looking for something that I know. And I see this, ah, there's, there's a chapter or something, like a section called Job. And then you go there and like, you're expecting the Bible to talk to you about like how to do better at your job or how to get a job. And you open it up, it's like, this is not about jobs. And then you might go a little bit, you go one, one section down a little and it's, Ah, there's a, there's a section called Palms. I mean, I'm wondering what that's talking about. Um, okay, so and the, even if you like um, go to the sections that you've heard people talk about, the part that talks about Jesus, you can get confused because there's like four different partitions that talk about, I mean, Matthew has his own version, and, and so does Luke and John and Mark, and I mean, which one of them has the right perspective on Jesus and his life? And so... Uh, one of the things that, um, that trips us up about reading the Bible is that we just don't understand it. Here's another reason. A lot of times, because we're Americans, um, we try to do it on our own. We assume that because we do everything else on our own, and we learn that from a very early age, reading the Bible is one of those things that, I mean, sometimes we don't even want people to know we're reading the Bible. All right? So I'm going to do this on my own. But what I've learned through my discipleship as a, as a young Christian growing up, but more importantly, what the Bible conveys to us is that there's very few things that, as a Christian that you should be doing by yourself. The Bible calls you into community, even reading the Bible. And so the way that we learn, to, we learn what's uh, enclosed in God's revelation of himself to us is by reading it opening it, understanding it, studying it with other people. Two reasons why we don't read the Bible as much. And so um, this is our text today as we get into it. It's written by James, uh, the Apostle James. We know about him a little bit because of our, our, uh, our series that we were taking a pause from. There's a lot of interesting things about the Apostle James. Um, he's the half-brother of Jesus. We got into that before. I'm not going to articulate all that, what all that means. Um, but here's what's most interesting to me about James. He wasn't a believer. So obviously when he writes these words here that become inspired scripture, he's a believer. But perhaps for most of Jesus' life, James, his brother, was not a believer. Um, and that makes sense. Uh, if, you, if you had a brother, or even a sister for that matter, who just woke up one day and decided they were God? I mean, wouldn't you think that something was going on? It's like, my, my brother is wacky. And, of course, Scripture tells us that James and, and Jesus' other siblings thought that there was something weird going on with Jesus. They did not believe him, at least initially. We don't know how, we don't know when, but at some point, James does become a convert, and God uses him in incredible ways as a pastor, mostly in Jerusalem, and uh, as a leader of the early church. And um, we get this letter from him. And James is writing to Jewish believers. He's writing to the church, and he's telling them this. He's telling them, I want you to know what's keeping you from understanding your Bible. And he gives them two very clear metaphors 
on why they aren't being impacted by their Bible the way they should be, but how to start. And the first metaphor is the Bible as seed. Look at verse 21. The Bible as seed. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. And so this idea of metaphor, Bible as seed, comes from this phrase, um, receive the, with meekness the implanted word. I'm going to explain that in a second. But before we even get to that, there's a couple other words that just jump off the page and almost beckons that we at least address it. And it's when James says, put away filthiness and rampant wickedness. All right, so if, you, if you're learning English, you know anything about the English language, you know that can't be good, right? And so here's what James is telling us. He's telling us before we can even come to have the word as seed implanted in our hearts as followers of Jesus, we got to do some things. And primarily, we got to deal with the filthiness and rampant wickedness. James is saying very simply, uh, deal with your sin, but also deal with your bigger sins. I'm trivializing this because I can't take too much time dealing with this. He's saying, deal with your sin. You know, sins, those small things that everybody does, well, not everybody, but a lot of people do that we might look over, like um, going over the speed limit, you're breaking the law. The Bible tells us not to break the law, Romans 13. You're supposed to follow the rules of the the laws of the the state. Um, uh, How about little white lies that we tell? How about... uh, Guys that might, you know, take a look and, you know, you're lusting with your eyes. The Bible says, the Bible says like, pull up that eye out if you do that, right? Um, those kinds of things. James is saying, deal with your sin. The things that you know are things you aren't supposed to do. But then he says, deal with the bigger things. That, that, I mean, those things that, uh, that the Bible says, the wrath of God is coming against you because of these things. Okay? I, I don't need to name those things. Deal with... The small and big sins. If you're going to be a person who approaches the Bible, who approaches Scripture in any way, reading, studying, memorizing, meditating, we're going to talk about those in a second, there's no substitute for obedience. James is encouraging us for the word to take effect in your life, then one of the primary things you got to do is you got to, you simply have to be obedient with what you know to do. Deal with your sin. Don't expect that you can magically do some religious activity and God will just glance over the fact that you're not doing what you know you should do. Deal with your sin. I think he's saying this is a prerequisite for approaching God's word. In other words, don't approach the Bible and think that just because you're reading it, it gets you off the hook. The Bible isn't, James rather, isn't telling us that we have to do all these things perfectly. We can't because of the sin in us. But you do have to be honest with God. That's his start point, to have the implanted word in you. And then he says, after you turn from your sin, receive the implanted word. This is a debated phrase, this, this phrase, receive the implanted word. James is Jewish, and most scholars believe that when James talks about anything, he is firstly filtering it through an Old Testament perspective. And in this case, they believe James is thinking back to the promise of the new covenant um, concealed in the Old Testament. Look at these two scripture verses. Je- uh, Jeremiah 31, verses 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. One more, Ezekiel 36, 27. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. 
these are Old Testament verses, but they are foretelling of a time when when God doesn't just have external rules or commands that he gives his people and expects them to follow them, but God will take his very word and by his spirit put it in those that he's calling to himself. And so we'll have the spirit of God and his word and his law residing in us. Of course, this happens physically at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. So in a sense, what James is saying is receive the implanted word means Firstly, experiencing regeneration. Regeneration is not a word that's in the Bible. It's a theological word that, that, that says that God literally does a work in you that you are unaware of, at least initially, that causes you, it causes you to, to, to come awake to the things of God and eventually leads you to repent of your sins and exercise faith in Jesus. That's, that's uh, regeneration. When Jesus is talking to Nicodemus in John 3, Nicodemus comes to him in the, you know, the, the dark of night, wanting to know about eternal life. And Jesus says, Nicodemus, you got to be born again. you got to be born of water and spirit. And that's what Jesus is talking about. The, the spirit has to come and awaken you to the things of God so that you would be even willing to, to, to follow me. Regeneration. Experience the spirit coming and changing you, writing the word of God on our hearts. So that's what James is saying. If you're going to learn anything about the scriptures, and if you're going to obey the scriptures, if you're going to read the scriptures, you've got to have the spirit. You have to be regenerated to even know Jesus. Receive the implanted word. So let me, let me stop and, and just say this. Some of you perhaps don't understand the Bible as much as you want to because you have not been regenerated. There has not been a moment where God, God has come in and awakened you to um, receive even the word that you're trying to read. And that's not a rebuke to you. It's just saying that this has to happen before the Bible is going to make sense to you. Regeneration has to happen before you can even, I mean, stop being your own savior, using your own mind, your, I mean, in, in, in your own will, which, is, which are all directed against God if you haven't been regenerated. You need the spirit. And so he's talking about regeneration, but he's also talking about sanctification. And sanctification is in your Bible, and it's very simply the process by which God, by his spirit, makes you more like Jesus. It's this very slow, ongoing process from the beginning of you following Jesus all the way to you die, where little by little, God is making you less like your sinful self and more like Jesus. His goodness, his holiness, his kindness, all those other great attributes that we read about, about Jesus. Practically, I mean, it, it, looks, it looks like if you're an impatient person, then Jesus is coming in you by the Spirit, and as he's empowering you, you become more patient. If you're a person that struggles with lust, Jesus is coming in by the Spirit, and he's empowering you to make you sexually pure. Receive the implanted word. That's what that means. Uh, uh, here's a, uh, an illustration that might help you get what I'm saying. All those words. Y'all ever know somebody that's gotten an organ transplant? All right, very few of us know, I mean, I actually had friends in North Carolina at my church that uh, there was a man dying. Uh, he's, his kidneys had failed. He needed uh, new kidneys. And we had another person in, in the church, uh, a female. They were friends that was, was, was willing to go through this transplant. And so I can't explain all that happens in a, I mean, I'm not a doctor. All right. So, but here's my rudimentary uh, process. All right. So the doctor's okay that the organs are going to match. And you have the surgery, and 
the, the surgery initially, I guess from the external perspective, seems successful, but then you just gotta wait. You gotta wait to see if the, the, the body of the recipient is, is, if your body receives, it's going to accept the organs that are new, that are introduced into the body. That not only if it's gonna accept them, if the body is going to use them fully and completely the way that they would use them if they were their own organ. And I think that's the exact same thing, same thing James is saying here. He's saying, um, are you going to just have the spirit in you, hear the word, or will you actually access the spirit's power by doing the word? And he articulates that in verse 22. Look at verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. Have you ever thought about this? I mean, what keeps us from just hearing the word and not doing it? Because all of us hear the word. Like right now, we're hearing the word. What would keep us from hearing it and not doing it? And I would tell you, everybody in this room, we hear the word and not do it all the time. Let me give you a couple ideas. One thing is pride. Um, this is an implication of the text. It's not actually written in the text. Pride in regards to reading a scripture would be like this. Oh, uh, well, I'm not sure that's true. Reading something from the Bible and saying, well, that can't be true. That's not what I know about God. And of course, the person is saying this without any, any kind of study. Now, have you actually read the Bible? And, and can you refute what the Bible is saying and calling it not true? Pride in reading something in, in, the, in the Bible would be like saying that you, I mean, reading it and knowing that it's pretty clear, but then saying, well, that doesn't apply to me. Pride says, I'll get around to doing what the Bible says at some point. Pride says, I'll obey this text when I get married, or I'll obey that one when I get a new job. I'll obey that one if I get another spouse. I mean, we're picking and choosing. I'll, I'll do these things when I feel like it. Pride basically looks at God's word and says, you know what? That's good information, but uh, it's not applicable to me. Pride keeps us from hearing and understanding and doing the word. There's one more thing I think that, that gets in the way of us uh, both hearing and doing the word, and that's um, shallowness. And of course, pride and shallowness, I'm, I'm just giving you implications of the text. These aren't written in the text in James. But I mean, I think this happens to us all the time. We live in a culture that's very culturally shallow. We just went through a very heated political presidential campaign, and you have political experts that know the candidates, they know the issues, they know us and our voting patterns, and we see on TV that they're saying, well, this is what's important for the country, this is the, this is the uh, politician that could, that could solve it for us, and this is who's going to win the election, and none of that happened. Ain't that right? I mean, y'all don't, don't agree with me if you don't want to. All right. But, uh, I mean, it happens in every area of life. Think about sports. I'm not a sports radio talk person, but, I mean, I want to say those shows are useless, but I won't say that because that's harsh, and some of y'all probably listen to those shows. But here's what happens on, on sports talk radio. Guys with a lot of information, they know the players, they know the teams, they know the stats, and they talk, and they talk, and they talk, and they talk, and they tell us that, you know, this team is supposed to beat this team because of all this stuff, and it never happens. Um, and, and another way of saying this is, uh, basically, I, I have the information, and so I have the mature view. And it's the same thing spiritually with all of us. 
It's the same thing with our faith. One author says, we've traded wisdom for knowledge. And if you think about it, knowledge is I know the facts of something. I know the facts about what's true. Wisdom is the art of living, actually living that truth out. And unfortunately, uh, we learned this thing that information equals truth. Or information, meaning the more information I have, the more mature I am. We learned that from like elementary age public school. Fairfax County Public School is a great school system, but in, in some ways, in many ways, the, 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 our teachers are forced to give our students lots of information so they'll pass the end of year test. And so we keep doing this. We learn information thinking it's going to make us mature uh, when all that it's doing is keeping us in this shallow lifestyle. We do that with things in our lives. We do that spiritually, but we also do it in the church. I wasn't a Christian growing up, but I did church events. I went to church, and I remember going to like VBS kinds of stuff. And you know, I was the outsider because I didn't go to church all the time. But I'd come, and I think these young kids—they they knew the stories, they knew the songs, they knew Bible verses. You know, and I didn't have this language, but in an adult Christian language, I, I was—I was thinking as a kid, "Wow, these are just good church. I mean, these are good church kids. I mean, they're just—they're good." But then I would see them in, in other spheres of life. They would go to the same parties I was going to. They would tell the same lies of their parents I was telling mine. They would, behind the doors, drink alcohol the way I was trying to do it and throwing up. And, and they were doing the other things that I was doing. So they went to church. They knew the stories and the songs, but they did not have the character to, to, to match it. And I think that, that's one of the reasons why I didn't become a Christian uh, until later in life, because the, 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 the young Christian people I saw were hypocritical. They had a lot of information. They didn't have the character maturity to back it up. And so it's easy for all of us to trade wisdom for knowledge. Shallowness and pride keep us from understanding God's words. I would tell the parents here in the room, the big thing you need to, to, to look for and think about as your kids grow up in the church is this idea of them having a whole bunch of Bible knowledge. And Bible knowledge is good, but if you don't see it resulting in character, like true godly character, then your, your child just, he has a big head. He, that's all he has. He has a big head with no character, character to follow it up. We can be deceived into knowing that, um, into thinking if I know stuff, if I know stuff about the Bible, I'm okay. James is telling us, he's, he's written, he's, he's a teacher. He's on the blackboard and he's writing big capital N O exclamation point. Absolutely not. To learn truth without obeying that truth is dangerous. That's what he's saying. It'll literally harden your heart. And so I think it's easy for all of us to be immersed in a Christian environment, yet be inoculated in the faith inoculated in the faith. We're just too close to faith. People who have heard so much truth, but somewhere along the line, your hearts get hard because, uh, I mean, you get to the point where you can't even feel God. And one of the ways this happens is we got this truth coming in, truth coming in, truth coming in. It's not being processed and it's not going out. It's not going from our head to our heart and being ap uh, applied with, with our hands. We've got clogged ears from hearing the word and, and not doing it. Hearing the word, not doing it. Hearing the word, not doing it. And as I said last week, before you know it, you're an adult, you're a Christian, 
And while you're supposed to do stuff, you're bored to death by your own faith. Some of you are, are bored with your own Christianity. You know a lot of information, but you, that, that information has not leaked into an, any kind of application. You know a lot of truth, but it hasn't traveled to your heart and then out to your hands. And James is saying that's dangerous. All right, so that's the Bible. Um, the Bible as the implanted word, as seed. And then he gets to another metaphor, verse 23. The Bible as a mirror. I like this one. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and, and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. So the Bible is a mirror. So when you look at the scripture, you're supposed to, the Bible is helping us understand who God is, his character, that God is, is compassionate, he's holy, um, he's, he's joyful, he's kind, he, he's love. It always interests me that people that don't read the Bible will always start with God is love. But guess what? If you don't read the Bible, you don't also get the picture that God is vengeful and that God is a God of wrath and that he is so holy that he can't even deal with our sinfulness. And so, when, I mean, you're talking to somebody that doesn't know the Bible, they will, they will argue you down that there, there can be no such thing as a God that would, that would punish me, that would send me to hell. Why? Because the God I know is a God of love. And when somebody says that to you, they haven't read the Bible. We want a, we want a Mr. Rogers God. He's got a sweater vest on like I do. He's all sweet. He's singing a song about there's something, something in the neighborhood. Right? Right? I don't remember the song that bad. But that's not the God of the Bible. It is. That's the God. Of, it's just, it's, he's like, he's, it's only half of them. So the, the, the Bible is a mirror to us. It shows us who God is. But here's the important thing that James is telling us. The Bible is a mirror to you. And and, I mean, it's pretty clear on who God is. God is magnificent and holy. He's the sustainer and creator of all. But the Bible is very explicit about you, too. And when the Bible explains you, this is, this is the picture that it gives you. It says it in these, these exact words. The Bible says, you're a mess. That's, that's, well, it didn't say those words. That's my, that's my edit. It says we're a mess. We're a mess because we have sin in our lives. And... And what James is telling us is that God invites us to look into his mirror. Now, think about it. Everybody here has a mirror, even you army people. I, have, I remember having a fill mirror, all right, thick thing. It used to be used as a reflective thing as, as well, uh, as if I wanted to sing on an airplane if I got stranded on, the, on an island like Castaway Tom Hanks. Um, uh, we use a mirror, what, to look at ourselves, right, to, to make sure that we look okay, to make sure that we're presentable, as presentable as possible when we're going out in public. First century, the mirrors weren't reflective glass like we have today. They were polished metal. And I don't know if you've ever looked at polished metal, but to look at, to see yourself clearly in polished metal, you got to look, I mean, you got to gaze intently. He uses those words. You got to look real hard because you're not going to see yourself unless you have the exact right light. It's almost like looking at yourself on the back of a spoon. I, I read this as I was researching this verse. Um, try this when you get home. Uh, if you got a cruddy spoon, it's not going to work. You need one of your best spoons. All right. Go in your good silverware. Look on. Uh, I don't I don't know what this I don't know how this is. Spoons are convex concave. If you look at the concave side, then you're like actually actually upside down. After service, one of you smart people explain that to me. I don't understand it. 
But on the convex side, even with a even with a good spoon, I mean, you got to like look really closely and intently to see the reflection of yourself appropriately. And so this is what James is saying. He's saying um, he's writing readers. I mean, you got to look really closely. You got to look really, really closely. Look at verse 23 and 24. We're going to read these two together. Uh, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. And then his readers, their their eyes would have perked up when they read this next verse. For he looks uh, looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. How in the world do you look at yourself in a mirror and then look away and forget what, what you've seen? I mean, have you ever done that? If you're old, obviously we do that sometimes. But that, that's, I mean, we don't do that too often. Look at something and then immediately look away and then forget what we've looked at. Uh, here's a couple of interpretations of what he's talking about. One is a quick glance. You ever been in a rush? Um, ladies, you, you, couldn't, you couldn't do all that stuff in the mirror at home, so you're like driving and, and putting your makeup on, like doing the best you can. You got a quick glance, makeup here, eyeshadow here, blush there. Y'all are impressed that I know all those terms, aren't you? I got it. I got it going on. And so think about yourself when you're in a rush and all you can do is get a quick glance at the, at the mirror. And chances are, if you're only doing a quick glance, you're going to miss some stuff. Uh, you, you, you got product in your hair and you got like a, a lump of it that you haven't smoothed in right. You got crud in your eye. You got a, a piece of Pop-Tart or a piece of egg in your tooth, booger hanging out your nose. I mean, I mean that happens, right? It doesn't happen often. But sometimes it happens, and it happens because you don't look close enough. You didn't have enough time. That's what this verse is. It says about how we treat the word. I mean, sometimes we're just not self-aware. Sometimes we don't take the time to look at the look at the word as it's intended for us. And James says it's supposed to be a mirror, a mirror that you have to gaze into. James is saying, don't do that. Don't do a quick glance look at the mirror because you need to look. The mirror is intended to show you who God is, but it's also also telling you who you are. And for it to show you who you are, you need to look real hard. You need to gaze at it intently. Because when you look at a natural mirror, reflective glass, it's just showing you the complexion of your face. But when you look at the mirror of the word, it's showing you the complexion of your soul. So you can't just, I mean, a quick glance won't do. God wants us to look into his mirror. And here's the thing, what happens to all of us. Uh, People who just glance at the, the, the mirror of the word are just examining the scriptures. And some of you would think, well, what's wrong with that? Aren't we supposed to be doing that? And the answer is yes, but God wants you to do more than that. Here's the process. You examine the scriptures. At some point, the scriptures are supposed to be examining you. And if you aren't in them long enough, you aren't going to let them do that thing that God's intended for them to do. So one of the ways that we look in the mirror and forget what we've seen is this idea of the quick glance. Here's another thing. It's the out of sight, out of mind. That's when you... um, you look at it and you choose not to, not to deal with what you see. And we do this sometimes as well. 
You see something so bad that you resolve that you can't fix it, and you just, and you just go on. This is like the, the guy that has an ailment. He goes to the doctor. The doctor tells him he needs surgery. He goes to the surgery. The doctor tells him, all right, I got the tumor, but it was cancerous. You're going to have to go through chemo, and you have to take medicine for the rest of your life. And guess what the guy does? This would be the guy that says, I can't do that. I'm not going to do that. He just ignores everything the doctor is going to say. And sometimes we do that with God's word of truth. We choose to ignore it. It's it's like Paul says in Romans 1. Paul says that God has revealed himself to all, and he reveals himself in in creation. In everything that we see, God has shown us a revelation of himself, but most of us aren't just jumping up and down, excited about what we see, about the revelation of God's truth. Most of us are repressing it. We're turning our eyes to the things that we see and saying, it does not exist. It does not exist. It does not exist. Pretending like it's not right there in front of our faces. We don't want the truth. But here's what God says. He wants us to look into his mirror to see who he is, but also to see our need for who, see, uh, to see who we are and our need for him. Now, uh, I wasn't in any of your houses before you got ready today, but guess what? I know how long each of you stood in the mirror this morning to get ready. Y'all aren't impressed by that? Not at all. That's, that's just upsetting me. This is how long all of you stood in the mirror. Some of you didn't look in the mirror at all, and you needed to. <laughs> some, of you, some of you looked into a couple mirrors. Like, you, you, went, you were doing your thing in the bathroom mirror, and then you needed, a, like, a full-length mirror, so you went into the hallway, and then you turned because you wanted to see if your butt looked, too, if your butt looked good or... If your clothes look too tight, um, I mean, we, we all do that, don't we? Or we ask our spouses, does my butt look too big in these, cl- these clothes? But here's the, here's the thing. We, we, we all look, no comments from you. <laughs> we all look into the mirror as long as we need to, to be as presentable as we want to be presentable in whatever situation we're going to go into. But here's the thing that none of us does. None of us, if we're looking in the mirror and we see something that's just like egregiously wrong, like... I do have a booger hanging out my nose. I'm just not going to leave it there. I'm going to address it, right? I'm going to get a napkin or something and blow that thing out and then wipe my nose. But here's what James is is saying. Sometimes we do this spiritually. We do it all the time. Um, We ignore the things that are just right there in front of us when he's saying, hey, the Bible's a mirror. Gaze into it and at least do something with what you see. Uh, to use a King James word, tarry, tarry in the mirror, tarry with God's word. That's the word intently. He's like, gaze into it as long as you need to, to make yourself presentable, not to the world, but to God himself. And then the next verse, he tells us what we're supposed to do. Verse 25. Verse 25. But uh, the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. I'm going to break this, this verse down in, in three places. Firstly, starting with uh, this idea of looks into the perfect law. So when James says look into, looks into the perfect law, he, he literally means stoop down and look. Get down as close to the, the thing that you need to do and gaze as long as you need to gaze to see the thing that God is, is wanting you to see, primarily you and your, your, yourself uh, put up against the, the, the picture of God and his holiness. Take a good gaze. Don't just glance. 
And so here's the, here's the thing. We're, we're talking about spiritual disciplines here. I know I haven't mixed that in very much. I'm going to mix it in right here. This text doesn't tell us a whole bunch about Bible study methods or the way that we're supposed to do it. Actually, the Bible doesn't talk a lot about that at all. So how do we know how to read the Bible? How do we know what technique works best? Well, I mean, we, we know from church history. We know from the, the fathers of the faith. We know from those, you know, dead theologians that have given us uh, um, just perspectives of the Bible of what it takes to, to, to sanctify, to, to grow, to be closer to God in this very important area of, of Bible intake, of, of listening to the Word. And so there really are a lot, I mean, it's infinite number of ways that you can intake the Bible. I'm going to give you three or four. I'm going to give you four ways that you can begin to meet with God in the Scriptures. And the first simply is reading the Word. Read the Bible. This is about consistency. Um, here's the thing. You cannot grow as a Christian without systematically reading the Word. You cannot. The, the Bible is your food. And a person that does not eat food shrivels up and dies. That's the truth. The Bible is word. It is food to you. It's your nourishment. You can't even know who God is without the Bible. And so this is where you got to start. Now, we live in a, the most technologically savvy age of, of the history of our, our, of our world. And so I shouldn't just say read the Word. You can get the same effect if you're listening to the Word. And so some of you aren't readers, and I'm okay with that. Um, can you listen to the Word? Can you take your phone out, Android, iPhone, download an app, okay, that has some kind of Bible software on it and read it or listen to it? I would tell you that everyone that I know, pastors included, no one that I know reads the Bible consistently in a good way that does not use a Bible plan, all right? I use version. I'm starting this year to use a Bible app called He Reads, what is it, sweetie? He Reads Truth. Obviously, I haven't been. So look, it's only the 8th of January. Give me a break, all right? <laughs> he reads truth. There's also a female version. She reads truth, okay? There's plenty of apps that you could use. You'd be a fool not to avail yourself to those ways to read the Bible. We read for breath. In other words, we read to, to, to just get the food in us so it nourishes us, so we can stay alive. The next step is studying. We study for depth. This is digging deeper. To study the Bible, I mean, you actually do have to get into uh, some technical stuff. You might have to research a word, what it means. You might have to research the context of where the verse is coming from, some of the historical perspective of it, where this person who might be presented in the text uh, might be coming from. But I would tell you, you don't need to go to seminary to do this. You can Google and get most of the information in, terms, in terms of the Bible study that you need to straight from the, uh, the Internet. Wikipedia is becoming better and better with the Bible scholars um, participating in that in, in terms of what, the, what Wikipedia says on the Internet about the Bible. Again, you can download an app uh, like Lagos or Bible Ark and things like that that will help you in terms of your study of the Bible. You don't have to learn Greek or Hebrew to study the Bible, although those would obviously be uh, advantageous to you. And, you know, for those of you that would push back and say, well, I don't have time for that, I would encourage you. Yeah, you do. You do. I mean, you make time for other things. 
You make time for keeping up with Angelina and Brad. Brad Pitt, Angelina Jolie. I mean, isn't that just like a, that just eats up all of our time. You make time for Facebook. You know what everybody's doing on your timeline in Facebook. You make time for, I mean, I don't know, if you like go on Craigslist and looking for great deals. Uh, you, you make time for sports fantasy league. Thank God football season is almost over, so some of you dudes can just stop this fantasy stuff. All right, I, that was meddling a little bit. I'm sorry. You got the time. You just got to make the priority. A third way that we can get connected to God in the Bible is memorizing the word, hiding the word in your heart. Um, I was a nav- I grew up, I became a Christian through navigators. This is like one of the first things I learned how to do. Um, I mean, this is important. Um, what, what do you do when, you, when you're memorizing the, the, the Bible? It's the words coming from the page to your mind and eventually, hopefully, leak into your heart so that you live from the Bible. Um, you know, uh, the, the psalmist says, how can a man keep his way pure by hiding it in his heart? Your word have I hit in my heart that I might not sin against you. Some of you dudes need to memorize that scripture. I learned it as a 19, 20-year-old because all 19, 20-year-olds are struggling with purity, right? And so what do you do with, with these Bible verses in the areas where you struggle? Worry, lust, um, control, pride, loneliness. You find Bible verses that, um, that equate to the thing that you're struggling with and you commit them to memory so that when the temptation comes, you call it up, and that's God helping you. That's his grace to you. And the last one is the most important, is meditation. Meditation is soaking the truth. And I would tell you, obviously, these are getting progressively harder, okay? They're getting progressively more involved, but um, the reward is greater the more you do all these things. Soaking in the truth. By meditation, I mean not transcendental meditation where you're emptying your mind, I mean the part where you're, the kind where you're, you're feeling it. Theologian, pastor, author Don Whitney says, meditation is thinking deeply on the scripture. It's the missing link between Bible intake and prayer. We're going to talk about prayer in the next two weeks. And what he simply means is this. Meditation on scripture is uh, God allowing God's thoughts to flood your heart. And I think we all need that. One pastor said, meditation is to think and ask questions about what God has said in his word so that we can hear what he's saying to us in the current, in the current time. Uh, I learned this as a navigator, too. I mean, navigators taught me a lot. Obviously, I was discipled very, I mean, very well in navigators. And I, I was taught this thing about uh, meditation is it's just turning God's word into prayer. And so I would meet with guys and girls, and then we would just we would read a, a passage of scripture, and then we would pray that scripture back to God. And we would ask questions as we're praying. It's like, Lord, what, what does it mean? What does this verse mean? What does it mean for, for me to be a doer of your word? What would it mean for me to, do, be, to be a doer of your word with, uh, you know, as, a, as a future spouse? What would it mean for me to do of your word as I'm going to work? And you let God's truth fill your mind so that eventually, um, not only dialoguing with God, you're hearing what he's saying to you in the current time. Um, there's a couple other things that James is saying here uh, in the, the, the other part of the text, but I'm running out of time, so I'm going to truncate that by, uh, uh, by just concluding with, 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 with two thoughts. 
The first is, um, he says, the law of liberty. Um, I mean, what, what's the purpose of reading the Bible? I mean, why would we read the Bible? Here's, here's one, one reason. The, the Bible wants to set us free from all the things that entangle us. Um, all of us are hung up on something, some small things, some great things. And the Bible is a Bible that lends us to freedom. The law of liberty is a code word for the gospel. And the gospel reminds us of how holy God is, but that, that holy God stepping into my world and in the form of Jesus, um, living a life I couldn't live, dying on the cross in my place for my sin. The gospel tells me that there's a mirror of who God is, but also who I am in front of God. And it, it presents to me that I'm broken and I'm sinful. That's really bad news. But it gives me the opposite good news that I serve a God who empathizes with me, a God who I'm accepted and empowered in because and only because of Jesus. And if I'm in Christ, then God does truly love me because of his son. And so spending time in the Bible, reading these verses, doing these disciplines, I, I'm not doing them so that I would be puffed up or that I would be filled with knowledge. I'm doing them so that I would meet Jesus himself. That's why I read the Bible. When I'm reading the Bible, I'm looking for Jesus. When I'm reading the Bible, I'm looking for the gospel. I'm looking for those things that God has said about me in terms of my identity, that I'm not just a sinner, but that I'm formed in his image. I'm adopted into his family, that God has come and he's placed his spirit in me and he's drawing me constantly to himself. He's transforming me less like my sinful self into who Christ is because of my union with him. You know, a lot of times pastors like me make the mistake of, uh, of turning the Bible into a self-help book. Let me tell you, the Bible is not a self-help book. The Bible is not a book that helps you be your best self now. Don't believe that. What is the Bible? It's, it's there for you to find God, not to help you achieve the American dream. The Bible is not there to puff you up in your faith so you'll become rich one day and have an airplane driving around. The Bible is here to help you understand God's story of redemption, to help you relate to God. The Bible is here to teach you how to submit to the spirit who lives in you. The Bible is here so that you can ultimately learn how to obey God. And the more you meditate on God's truth, the more you'll be able to obey. The more you obey, the more you'll be able to become who, uh, the person God wants you to be. The more you are able to become who God wants you to be, the more freedom you'll have. So this book is about your freedom. That's why Paul says, that's why James says, the law of liberty. He wants to set you free. And that's what this last verse is telling us. And then lastly, he says, you'll be blessed in your doing. When you obey God, you'll experience God. When we obey God and experience him, I think James is saying, you're going to get a little taste of heaven right here on earth. When our will is underneath and God's is prominent, when God is getting his way in my life, that's exactly where you want to be. How does that start? Read the word. Study the word. Memorize the word. Meditate on the word. This is not an overnight. I'm going to read two verses and tomorrow morning. I'm going to be like Jesus. This is like hard work. You got to press in. It's called a discipline. Things that we do 
in our direct labor that eventually lead me to do the things that I cannot do, at least not without the Spirit's help. God says, James says, you'll be blessed in your doing. And I think that's what God wants for you. But you gotta, you got to read the Word. So let's get practical. Let's read the Word this year. Let's read the Word this year, Transit Church. And uh, I, I wanted to do a whole year Bible reading plan, but the leaders wouldn't, they weren't ready for it. Your leaders weren't ready for it. So this is what we're going to do. Uh, I'm going to challenge you. I don't have any way of tracking you, but let's read the Word this month. Let's read the Psalms and the Proverbs together. If you would go to the Internet, Google, Bible reading plan, Psalms and Proverbs, you'll come up with something. All right? In you version, they have a Psalms and, and Proverbs reading plan that takes you through both of those in, in one month. Basically, there are 31 Proverbs, right? One per day. There are 150 Psalms. If you start on whatever Psalm of that day, like tomorrow's the ninth, and then add 30 to it. So what would that be? Tomorrow I'm going to read 9, 39, 69, 99, 129. If you do that for a whole month, guess what? You're going to read all the Proverbs and all the Psalms. Let's do that. I challenge you to do it. I'll come back a month from now, February 10th or whatever the date's going to be. And for those that get through it, I won't give you anything, but I'll love you. <laughs> That's what he wants for us. God wants for us to not just be nourished by his word. He wants us to find who he is in the word. He wants us to see in a mirror uh, not only the reflection of himself, but to see truly who we are and let the, 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 the word by the spirit transform us into who God wants us to be. That's what he wants for our church. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. Your word is life. In it, we discover your story. You reveal yourself to us. Lord, you show us a picture of our sinful selves, but you also show us the good news of a God who loves us to his death, that we're accepted in him, that our identity is not in who people say we are. Our identity is caught up in Jesus. So thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you have given us this truth, that you've breathed on it, that you've inspired men over the course of history to write it. Lord, I, I'm particularly thankful for the men and women throughout history, especially in the first three centuries, um, who were persecuted and who ultimately were uh, put to death so that we would have I mean, the, the, the words of the Bible for our own reading today. I ask you to speak to your people as they read the scriptures. God, make this word come alive in us, that we would come alive in you. I pray that in Jesus' name.